Let us pray. We come to you this morning because we, we may. We can call you by your, by your name, Yahweh. Because when Moses asked you, what shall we call you? You said, Yahweh. Just, I am who I am. It's amazing that you gave your name to us. It's difficult to call anyone if you don't know that person's name in a crowd. And here we can call upon you and we know that you immediately give us your attention. To have a God that cares for us is amazing. To have a God that shows interest in us is the weirdest thing. Because we are also undes undeserving of this. There's nothing that we can bring today to you to claim your attention. We can only come and say we are sorry. Because the way that we think about you and treat you. But thank you that you are with us in this building and that you want to have this family meeting with us. And thank you for your word that we can have in our hands and read it and apply it to the year 2022. Knowing that this will never pass, your word. Because people will stay the same. Environment may change, but we are just who we are. Broken, uh, stupid people in the sense. But you are concerned. So thank you for your word that we know will apply always to your kingdom and to us. Bless us in this hour. In your name we ask this. Amen. So this pastor um, was walking down the street not far from his house, and there was a young boy selling a lawnmower. And he said to him, okay, I'll buy a lawnmower, lawnmower for how much? And the boy said, and the pastor said, okay, I'll, I'll take the lawnmower. And then the thing didn't want to start. So he went to that, back to the little boy. He says, the lawnmower doesn't want to start. And the boy said to the pastor, you haven't yet cussed at it. He said, I'm a pastor. I, I, I can't even remember how to cuss. And the boy said, just keep on putting that string. It will come back, I promise you. <laughs> I, 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 I almost said I've been there. If you, uh, if you ever have had an issue with a lawnmower, you don't understand this issue. You have a limited time. You've got tall grass, and the thing just doesn't want to listen to you. And it looks okay from the outside, but it won't run. And it happened to me and Ferdinand a long time ago that we really were in a rush to get the yard done and this thing wouldn't start. And he said to me, Dad, what now? I said, okay, there are a few things. And I learned it from my dad. He needs to have gas, you know that, that's not stupid. Then he needs to have a spark, so a spark plug, and if it's not that, the, the uh, carburetor can be dirty. So we took the carburetor out, cleaned the thing, and eventually the lawnmower then started to run. You know, when I drive around in Orlando, I see all these homes. I drive around in Orlando and I look at the faces of the people around me in the city. I had to install a pastor on the other side of town yesterday afternoon. And I was driving to Saturday afternoon and I was looking at the faces of the people and nobody really looked happy. Sort of staring in front of them, you know. Didn't really see anybody sort of smile. Now maybe you don't want to smile <laughs> on the road. But many times when I see houses from the outside, I always wonder what's on the inside. Because everybody has a story, and every house and family in that house has a story. And time and time again, I've heard stories about what's happening inside, inside those, those homes that are not the best to know. From the outside, it looks great, but it's not working, is it? 
relationship is not working between the husband and the wife, there's a lot of aggression and there's a lot of frustration and resentment. Many times the relationship between the parents and the children are always not that great. And there's a lot of yelling and screaming taking place and slamming of doors and ignoring and silence treatment. There's a lot of tensions and tension and anxiousness in these homes that we see from the outside. And my heart really breaks for people. Honestly, my heart breaks because I, I know this is not what God wants for us. God really wants us, while we live in this really terrible world, to be okay-ish, sort of where He wants to take and lead us. And a little bit with respect, like the lawnmower, God has given us certain things that if we apply it to our lives and apply it to the way that we live, then maybe we can at least experience some of the goodness and the blessings that God wants us to have. You can't really see this now because we only have one screen, but this girl says, I look happy, but I'm really not. Every day is one day less of being alive. I, you don't know me. Sick of tears. I don't care anymore. I hate this life. A confession today. Louise and I went for our walk <laughs> one morning, maybe this, this week, and I said, Louise, I'm so tired of this life. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, you know, sometimes it gets to me. What is happening in this world around us and with people and all the things that we are exposed to, that you sometimes are exhausted by living. And I think this little girl felt the same a little bit. So I'm starting with a new series now. Don't try to read this or even remember this. That's not important. How to live a Christian life in a time like this. Now, we've had times like these many times in our, in our history in America, but there's always a time like this that we need some guidance and advice, I think. So I'm going to go through these 10 topics in the next 10 weeks. And today we're going to start with number one, that love thing. The world hasn't done that well with love. They sing about it. They write songs. Well, it's in the lyrics of songs. They write books about it. So many movies deal with the topic of love. But it's not going that well. I see countless of people in my office that got married at some point, and they would stare at one another and hold hands, and say, oh, it's for eternity. And now they just do not want to be together anymore. They can't face one another. And I would many times ask a couple, so what do you think will keep you guys together? Oh, the love we have for one another. I would say, oh, yeah, yeah. It's way more than only that, I promise you. It starts off with very hard work and then some other things that's not for now and for today. But the example that the world gives us about love, love is not good. And I think we will agree if we just look at the world around us. So there must be a different way of looking at love. Now you guys know, I've preached about this many times over the last many years I've been here. The agape love and eros love and all those things. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to try to make it very practical today. So let's go and look at this very familiar chapter that you always hear at a wedding. It's not for the couple that's going to get married only. It's for us sitting in this church in 2022. So let's go and read this a little bit. Paul says, if I speak in tongues of mortals and angels and do not have love, I'm a noisy gong. It's like that thing back there that Philippe is boing. Yeah. Or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, and I do not have love. I've got nothing. Paul says, if you have enough faith to move a mountain, you do not have love, it means nothing. 
If I give away all my possessions, hand over my body, so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Life, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. And then at the end, now faith, hope, love, abide. These three, and the greatest of these, love. Let's go and look at the congregation in Corinthians. If you go and look at the map, it's an amazing spot where that church is. So there's, I, I should have given you the map, I forgot. So, so there's Greece, and then there's sort of a piece of Greece that sits here, and there's this very small little bridge between these two peninsula and the a peninsula sort of, and then the country of Greece. That's where Corinth sits, right there. So if you want to get to this side of Greece, or to that side, you had to move through Corinth. So everybody tried to move through Corinth, and even to get from the south to the north ocean-wise, they would actually dock their ships, drag their cargo across, and put it on ships on the other side. Because you had to sail, I don't know how many hundreds of miles around this thing to get to the other side. It was very dangerous to sail that, that route. Fascinating city. A fascinating city that had all the potential in the world to be a great city. And in a sense, it was a great city in trade and in all of these things because a lot of people moved there because it was moving, man, from south to north, from east to west. It was like this crossroad, oceans there, and then land masses there. Paul went there and he planted the church. It's the place where he stayed the longest. He stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Stayed with Asilla and Priscilla. That's where he stayed with this, this couple, and eventually there was a claim against him in front of a guy called Galileo, Galileo and then eventually that was rejected, but, and Paul continued with his work. I'm not going to tell you all the history, history now. But he planted a church. And while Paul was there, the church was doing well. They were, they were sort of thriving in this very complicated city. A city that got the name, and I, there's a long Greek name for it, but it means that the Corinthians were an example of how to live a wild lifestyle. They were, they were wild and everything. It's like Las Vegas on steroids. That was Corinthians. And Paul succeeded in planting a church there, and the church actually did okay. And guess what was on the hill? Just outside of the city, a huge temple to Aphrodite, the god of love. There were a thousand prostitutes at that temple, and every night they would come down into the city to come and do their work. Problematic place to be a Christian in many different ways. Then Paul left, <laughs> and then he got news on how well his church is doing there. I'm not talking about the Corinthians. I'm now talking about the congregation in Corinth. I'm talking about Christians, supposed to be Christian people in Corinth, that Paul got the news from. He heard that they were extremely dysfunctional at this point. They were selfish in every single way. They were just thinking about themselves and doing their own thing. They didn't care for another person. They were jealous about what the other people would do and what they would get. There, was, there were fractions and divisions within the church. There were political infighting in the church. There was a lot of immorality in the church. It took Paul 
12 chapters in 1 Corinthians to tell this congregation what they heard about them. <laughs> it was stunning what they did. Lawsuits. Go and read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I can't understand. Why are you dragging Christians who are Christians? You are fighting one another in front of a judge that's not a Christian. And he now needs to decide for a Christian what the right thing is to do. He says, you, you can't do this. Hatred and hostility. And then communion. What, the most sort of holiest moment for a congregation to meet, what happened was they would have a meal, like, like a normal dinner. So, so, so some of the people don't like other people in the church, and they would run towards the time when it was communion, and they would eat all the food so the people that they don't like won't get food, despite them. Using communion now as a way to get to people that you don't agree with by excluding them a little bit then from what's happening at the table. Now, I, I, I think you can imagine Paul was not in the best of mood when he wrote this letter. And you can find it when you read this. He actually wrote three letters. We've got two letters in the Bible. One got lost. Some people say maybe the third letter is sort of spread between the two. We are not really sure. There are sections in 1 Corinthians and the 2 Corinthians that seem as if they would fit together and maybe be separate, but that's not for now. But we know there are three letters that Paul wrote to this congregation, and we've got two of those. Because Paul was upset with this church of his. Because he said to them eventually, he said, there's no way that you guys can be what God has called you to be if you act like this. Because there are no difference between you and the world. You act the same, you look the same, you do the same. What, what voice do you have really then to the outside world? If my family is a disaster, how can I really help to guide other people? If my work life is unethical, how can I really stand for what God's kingdom represents if I am someone that's known at work that is not doing my work in the way that I should do it? It's what Paul, in a sense, is saying to this lot. He says, you can't continue like this because the kingdom of God is suffering. It's not only about you guys. It has to do with the kingdom of God that needs to be represented because God chose us sitting here in 2022 to represent His kingdom in this world. And if we fail, then in a sense, the kingdom of God will fail in the world that we touch. The impact on every single part of their lives were destructive. It had to do with, oh, okay, I'm, I'm beyond that now. Let me just go back to this slide then. It had to do with their individual and then collective work that they were doing. So, so think for a moment. If I say I'm a Christian and I want to live a biblical lifestyle and I lack this thing that I'm going to talk about a little bit more, love, then in a sense it will have an impact on who I am because how I look at the world and people around me, but eventually the way I act upon other people will have an influence then in a, in a, greater, in a greater realm. And that is what Paul was concerned about that was happening in Corinth. This congregation was supposed to sort of make a small difference in this really hectic town. But slowly but surely, this town actually invaded this congregation with its culture and its norms. And this congregation became numb, nothing, mute. There's nothing that could influence anymore. The lamp was dimming then in the city. Then he came and he said, so how can I fix this lot? How can I help them 
to be what God has called him to do and, he, and to be. And he said, the place where I need to start is like gas for the lawnmower. That's the first thing that you need to have. Gas, without gas, nothing will go anywhere if it's a gas-propelled vehicle. The gas for Paul in this congregation and for us is love. And therefore, he gave us a list. He said, love is patient. It means to be patient with other people. It needs to, means that you need to look at people in a different way. It means that you bite out a filling before you respond, because sometimes your response will not be the best one. And time and time again, when I marry people and couples, I would say to them, patience, patience, patience is what is asked. To just step back for a moment before you step forward and attack. Just let it be for a moment. He says love is kind, and kind means to be soft. Kind needs to be, and I'm not going to preach about all of these things, I'm just mentioning them. Kind needs to be soft, in the sense that you are not a hard person, that you are approachable. There are a lot of people that you feel, I can't really talk to this person about anything because I do not know, because there's not a softness that is reflected from this person. I and you as Christians need to have a softness around us that people would feel to hug us emotionally and with their stories. Love is not envious. It means that I allow people to have what I don't have. The world consists, <laughs> Barclay wrote, of those that have and the others that wants those that wants what these guys have. <laughs> and many times people are extremely difficult to live with because they are envious, because they don't have what others have. God gives us what He believes we need to have and be okay with it. Not to be boastful, so not to always tell and toot your own horn about how important you are and all the things you've accomplished in life because you are actually not... None of us are actually succeeding in helping anyone in that way. Arrogance, you know well that mean, what that means. Arrogance means that you look down upon people and you always try to let them know that you are in control and in charge and they are actually worthless. That's what arrogance means. You, you, see, you see, this list looks okay that we look at it and think, I don't do these things, but Paul meant for it to be true of our most personal, intimate relationships. Because that's the place where you practice it. You practice it at home with your spouse, your children, your family. The people that irritate you the most is where you need to start to practice this because only then you can do it outside in the world. It's not rude. We know what rude means. It's not insisting on its own way. And that's many times now the issue that people would yell and scream at you. And maybe we are yelling and screaming back because I insist on my way. Not irritable, not resentful does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but in the truth. So I need to apply this to my church family, to my family at home, to my workspace, and to my world that I live in. I'm not going to get this right, and I'm almost done. But this is the second part of my sermon. How am I going to get this right? I, I sit in church and I listen to this. Paul asks of me this list of things. Maybe you should type it out and put it on your mirror in the, in, where you shave and where you do that makeup thingy. And, and remind yourself that this needs to be applied to my life as I say good morning to my people at home and as I say wave to my neighbor that's doing not unkind things. And, and as I drive down the road, I, I, I said to Louise, I understand road rage a little bit this week because of something that happened to me. I was pulling into a gas station at Sam's and I, as I'm pulling into the pump, a guy came from the exit lane where the cars go out, and he pushed right in front of me, missed me with a millimeter, and pushed right in front of me 
to take my spot. If I were not a Christian and I was preparing this sermon, I may not have been here today. Because uh, my, my, I'm worldly in that way sometimes. I had to fight a lot of things in my... Let's not go there. But I sat in, I said, Lord, did you see this? <laughs> Lord, did you see this? You will take care of him. <laughs> I gave it to the Lord because I... Uh, okay, let me just stop there. Not, not, not go there. But I need to apply this to life. And how can I do this? Now, I'm going to give you three very quick things. Now, before I do this, let me do this slide. So many times when you talk about love, people say, well, you know, it's a sign of weakness. I grew up in South Africa, and, you know, we are, we're a tough nation. We were at war. Every single guy my age was in the military or were somewhere serving in our forces because you were com compelled to go, either prison or in the Army or in the Air Force or in the Navy. So you were, all of us were trained to, to be fighting men, in a sense. And this love thing sounded so weak, doesn't it? But it's the opposite. This, this love thing actually changed lives. The reason why I have that picture of this guy up here is his name is Rian Swigelar. I heard his name for the first time, first time in my life on Thursday. He's the co-founder of the Satanic Church in South Africa. He gave his life to Christ last week. He's got tattoos on his face, 666, here on the side of his head and on his arms. He's going to remove all of those. And it's in the, this is from our main newspaper for Sunday, the report. It's the most important newspaper in South Africa. On the second page, his whole story gave his life to Christ week, last week or the week before. And I read it this morning because Luis told me this on Thursday or whatever, that his story is there. There's one thing that he said that I read. He said they were doing a ritual and then he just knew it was God speaking to him. He said and he sensed this love that he couldn't explain. But it had a beginning, the story of his. A while ago, a woman did an interview with him. And she's a Christian. And he reflected every single thing that opposed what she believed. And she was so kind to him in the interview that at the end, she looked at this guy that looks terrible. I, that's a really good picture of him, but he's got this huge blue tattoo thing over his head also. And she said, let me give you a hug. He said, and for the first time, this woman just gave him a hug. She's older than he is. Gave him a hug. He said, and I sensed a love that I can't explain. That triggered something, and when he had this meeting with Christ a few days later, he is now... On the news, and in the newspapers, he says, I just want to say, I'm, I was the co-founder of the satanic church in South Africa. I gave my life to Christ. Is that now a sign of weakness to hug someone that you don't like? Is that a sign of weakness to hug someone that has a completely different, different political view than you have? Or a view about stuff in this world that you hate? It's, a, it's an instrument of change. Quickly, three things. How can we get this love thing to work? That's now the second part, make the lawnmower work. You need gas, but you also need the spark. What's the spark? Love should be grounded in gratitude. A woman was diagnosed with a terminal illness, like a friend of mine last week. It visited us two weeks ago. Found out he's got stomach cancer and now also in his liver. And I said to him, your life is going to change now because everything is going to look different. He said, that's true. This woman was... <clears throat> she was diagnosed with a ter terminal illness. 
And somebody asked her the question, how are you coping? She said, you know what it made? It made me look different at, differently at life. I was always concerned about tomorrow and next month and next year. I'm now concerned about today. I'm grateful that I have today. She says, and because I'm grateful for today, I can love people today. Not thinking about yesterday anymore, not caring so much about the future anymore, but just for today. And I thought to myself, when I greeted you this morning, I said, what a wonderful day the Lord has made. Be thankful and rejoice in it. That is what number one means. Then you can have love if you are thankful for today. The second thing, a love that is grounded in graciousness. MacDonald wrote the story of a guy that was on a subway in, in, in New York and, and his kids were all over. They were hopping up and down, hanging on stuff and bouncing on the, And the people were sitting there reading their stuff quiet and then just a ruckus. At some point, one guy just couldn't take it anymore and the dad was sitting there just slumped over. He said, sir, sir, I apologize, but your children are a bit wild for us. Can you somewhat control them? The dad looked up, he said, I'm so sorry, I, I know I should do something, but we just are now on our way back from the hospital. My wife and their mother just died an hour or two ago. I have no idea what to do with them, and I don't, I, what to do now, and I don't think they, they do either. It's a true story. Everybody in that, in that car train changed immediately, the way they looked at this guy and the children now. Now they are not this... Rebunctious, stupid kids. They are now children not dealing with the death of their mother. Love means that you try to see what's behind the story before you judge, before you just reject, to always just ask the question. So I've dealt with lots of angry people in my life, and I sort of enjoy them a little bit. Because they're angry, and I would say, Why is he angry? What is hurting? Help me understand. I really understand you're angry. Maybe I can get angry as you are. And then sometimes you hear a story that makes everything different. Love is grounded in graciousness. And graciousness means to allow another person's story to be told before you judge and just condemn. Lastly, it should be grounded in generosity. When we hear the word generosity, we always think about money. Love means I need to give money. No. Maybe a little bit. But to be generous with your patience. Let me go back. Where is that slide of mine? Am I there? No, I'm too far. Let me go, go back. I, there you go. To be generous with my patience. To be generous with my kindness. To be generous by not being envious. To be generous in not being boastful. To be generous in not being rude. To be generous in every aspect of all of those things that Paul was mentioning there. So generosity means that I, oh, that's the offering. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. To be generous in the offering. Yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, amen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. You know, and when we are generous with those things, you saw the family in the beginning. Maybe this can be part of the story of the church. Where we do succeed a little bit in making our interpersonal relationships, the close ones, okay. And even with our difficult neighbors, way better because of all the things I've said now. And the people at work that irritate us so much. Maybe there's a hug needed for the one that you resent the most. 
And maybe the church can have an influence in this world that is now driving us crazy, as the world has done always. But we sometimes feel, I've had enough. I can never say that. Because as long as I live, my task is not done. To do what God has called me to do, and that's to stand up for what I believe, but do it in love. Amen.